Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for June 2nd, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, good to have you on. And uh, just two little pieces of business. One, Catherine won't be on with us tonight. Um, so it'll just be Tim and I. And then the second thing... We have talked to Jackson Dar, and he will be joining us from Red Racing Horses, kind of giving us a horse race perspective of a lot of different races across the country from more of a Republican perspective. So uh, just an interesting guest to always have on, incredibly well-informed. Uh, let's go ahead, and Tim, and let's start off pretty big and national. Um, I want to say it was Tuesday that – uh, there was a, um, or it could have been Wednesday. It was midweek that you know it was reported that Robert Mueller was going to come out and speak, make a statement. Nobody exactly knew what it was. I know you didn't know what it was because you had texted us about it. And then he gave his remarks, and they were more definitive than I guess some summations in the Mueller report. But some people kind of still saw what they wanted to see, if you will. Um, Tim, kind of tell us about what your thoughts were on that whole process. Well, I was fortunate to be able to be to be at home that morning and 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 to watch the whole thing and some of the pundit reaction and the reaction of um, other political uh, people, elected officials, including our beloved president. After uh, and, and there were several things to that I took away from this, that, that, that Mueller just, you know, spelled out there. Number one, he said the report speaks for itself. Uh, a lot of people had that had read the report thought they read some cryptic things in it. They thought they read exonerations or this or that and the other. And he, and, 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 and he didn't indicate that at all. Um, and, and, and another thing he, he, he made, he, he said it, too, in no uncertain terms that Russia did interfere with our election. That's why nearly 30 Russians were, you know, indicted, uh, and that they had help doing so. And even more, as he said right at the end, that they may do it again. Um, and the the third thing, and I just want to read a direct quote, and it's the most quoted piece from his speech this week, and and he said it again. He said, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. And so what I took away from his remarks that one reason that Trump was not charged 
He believes that a president in office cannot be charged with a federal crime. He thinks that is unconstitutional. I don't particularly agree with that. Some people agree with it. Some people don't. The Constitution really doesn't spell that out. Another thing is that he believes a president can be investigated. That's why he was doing it. He thinks it is then up to Congress as to what to do about the findings. He, he, you know, he believes as the special prosecutor that, uh, you know, he was just conducting an investigation, and he believes then that the, uh, I don't want to say criminal part of it, but the justice part of it really then goes to Congress, and he believes that that is spelled out in the Constitution. Uh, as as he mentioned, uh, he also made it clear he doesn't want to testify. He wants this to be the final words that he has to say publicly on it. So um, he didn't clear Trump. <laughs> we we could see that. And, and and at first Republicans tried the old. It's over, so let's move on gamut. Well, that didn't work. And then Trump lashed out, as inevitably we knew he would, and especially at Mueller, started talking about all these conspiracies. And I, oh, gee, my head just hurt uh, reading some of it. And at last count, as a result, the number of House members who favored starting proceedings for impeachment have grown now to 54 Democrats, and as we talked talked about last week, one Republican. So there we are. Uh, obviously, the president wasn't pleased with what Bob Mueller had to say, was he, David? No, but he still kind of played it off. And that's what I want to get to you, uh, he, or ask you more about. He, he takes this job, for starters, and even if you believe that you know the president can't be indicted in office, and I would have my own theories about that, uh, you know, somebody could misuse it where somebody's doing something in the you know part of their job, i.e., um, maybe they have to call the national guard on somebody. Uh, you know, kind of a David Koresh kind of situation. Um, that's probably why our poll think, oh, it, you know, you shouldn't be charged as a sitting president. But then, I mean, I guess the framers probably had no idea there'd be a Donald Trump. But you know, somebody could somebody go in and uh, hold up a bank, commit murder. I mean, you know, I don't think that anybody would um, say that the Constitution protects you just because of the office. Um, I guess the thinking is someone you know, holds the president is going to be a higher moral character than that. Um, but but well, getting back to Bob Mueller, he, he takes this job, and then it's now like, well, I sent this report in. Don't bother me anymore. And then he saw how egregious William Barr handled this thing. The attorney general, and I was like, well, I've got to say more. And then he says, I mean, almost as little as he can possibly say, and he doesn't really want to testify, but then he said, if you really, really want me to testify, I'll testify, but I really don't want to. Why is – after seeing how Bob Mueller and the rest of the Republicans in the administration are handling this thing, why is he not willing to be more forceful and speak out about what he did find and make this thing crystal clear to the American public? He does not wish to appear 
political or partisan in any way. That much I believe. And he is going to great lengths to avoid the appearance of it. Secondly, he's 74 years old. He came out of retirement and did this. I think he feels in his heart of hearts that his job's done. And, and now the next group, Congress, needs to take over. He does, He's a traditionalist. I truly believe that he believes what he said, that a president can be investigated and that that was his, part of his job to do it, one of two big things he was doing. Number one, investigating Russian interference in the election, and number two, the administration's part in that. Uh, I think he uh, truly believes that investigation was his only job. Uh, that is why he just did not come out and say it. But I think, after re- especially after reading the report, that he laid out several, several, you know, examples of criminal activity uh, by the president, by the administration, especially in the area of obstruction of justice. And... Uh, I don't necessarily agree with him not being as forceful, you know, as you, as you would have liked him to have been. I would, uh, of course, have liked him to have uh, been far more forceful, but I just, you know, I believe that's who Bob Mueller is. Uh, and I, I think it's right there in front of us now. I think he left us the blueprint uh, to go to the next step. And the question is, are Democrats going to move toward that next step? I don't see how they can resist doing so much longer. Well, and that's the thing. Okay, Bob Mueller, he could say, I want to say this simply. I want to say this succinctly. I want to say this delicately. Whatever he wants to say. But then if the people don't want to hear it that way, all these people in power – then isn't he forced to become you know, more forceful? Sometimes you talk to people, they just don't want to hear what you're saying, and you have to change your tone, your way of functioning, so whatever you need to can come out. And I think this is one of these cases because obviously if just one Republican is willing to see it this way, or he needs to say it in a way where, I mean, there's just no other determination but – that the Republicans just have their head in the sand and don't want to hear about this. And another thing, you talk about not being too partisan um, or not being too politically motivated. I think people need to understand a difference in your guy sucks, your lady sucks, instead of your ideas suck. And if you, you come – you know, the way Donald Trump conducted himself with Russia, you can say that he is a you know bad vessel, but that doesn't – you know. Immediately implicate every Republican idea. Uh, you can separate the person from the ideas, and um, I don't see why Bob Mueller, being a smart man, couldn't figure out a way to tell the story of what happened in the 2016 campaign and since then and not separate out the two ideas. I mean, Tim, do you think that's a doable and a worthy goal? Yes, a doable and worthy go, but I still think um, 
you know, Mueller is is who he is. That that is who we saw Bob Mueller being Bob Mueller the other day. Now that I actually uh, believe that. And and as timid as we say that Bob Mueller is, you got Doug Collins from right here in Georgia saying, listen to Mueller, he thinks you're guilty until you're proven innocent. Did you hear that at all in Bob (laughs) Mueller's words? Where are they getting that? That's what I'm saying. And by the end of the week, Trump had picked up the drumbeat and went to tweeting about, uh, you know, this this Mueller, he's a bum, and the blah, 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 blah. It's, it's, un, it's unreal. I mean, what did now see? Trump expected Mueller to come out there and say, "I exonerate the president." He is totally and and he wouldn't do that. He said what I said. You know, he 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 said if we had had confidence that the president did clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. Well, let's carry that out and say, well, we did not say so. So that means, you know, of course, they 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 think probably that the president did commit a crime, but constitutionally they can't charge him with one. Now, I think yeah. they could, but he believes they can't. That's just one place where, you know, I'm going to be in disagreement with Bob Mueller. Not that he'll lose sleep over it, but apparently I have a lot of company by by believing that. So uh, I, I think he could say, you know, come out and say, we, we, we believe the president committed a crime, and here it is. Congress, your turn. But he, he said what he said and then said, you know, Congress, it's your turn. So with Mueller being out of the way now, we have to turn our attention to Congress. And there was a real uptick in the number of congressmen who signed on to, you know, start up some hearings at least uh, or, or go with a select committee or something. We went from under 40 congressmen uh, since Wednesday to today, up to 55. So <laughs> obviously there's a growing drumbeat of, of congressmen who are, who are wanting to get the ball rolling on something, and the question becomes, how is Nancy Pelosi going to handle this when it, say, becomes 100 or, go, or goes up to 150, a significant number? What's she going to say then? What's she going to do then? She's been walking this tightrope. That's what we've got to look at next, is what is going to happen. And should we worry about the political ramifications? What do you think? Well, and and that's a tricky thing. Now, now let me just pose this as an either-or, and I don't think it is. But let's just say, you know, you look at the facts and you think impeachment is – completely justified the right thing to do but if if you do it you're going to lose in 2020 at the presidential level if you let it go but you think that you know you shouldn't be letting crimes go 
um, high crimes and misdemeanors, if you let that go, that you will win. I, and I don't know, like I said, I don't believe it's an either-or situation. I don't, I don't see why it has to be. But let's say you really deeply feel it's an either-or situation, which there are some Democratic leaders that think that, I guess based on 1998 and, and other polling they've seen. If that's the case, Tim, what do you think we do? Well, if you present it as that start choice, it's hard not to go with option number two. Now, the thing is, historically, the next presidential election after an impeachment are, and I'll throw Nixon in there with that and make it three cases. In all three cases, two Democrats and one Republican, the opposite party won the very next presidential election. So if we're looking at item number one that you said as being set in stone, well, historically, that is not accurate. If we go to 1866, when Andrew Johnson, and 1867, when he was being impeached, well, the very next presidential election uh general grant one the opposite party if we go to richard nixon and when he had to resign the very next presidential election jimmy carter in the opposite party won if we come to bill clinton he was impeached even though the drumbeat was out there in 1998 and it cost him in congressional elections but in 1999 he was actually impeached, and a year and a half later, the Republican candidate, uh, Bush 43, won the election. So, I, I, you know, be that as it may, I, I've got to go with doing the right thing. I've got to go with doing the right thing. And if impeachment is the right thing, I think now at least moving toward it is. Yes. Now, one more thing that I want to take out of this. Um, there was another aspect we thought would might come out that would get right to the president but not get the president. Um, more implications of Don Trump Jr. Um, that's something I think that if Bob Mueller were to testify, that that would be an interesting thing to look at and see what happened if he revealed information. Was there just nothing there? Was there not enough there? Was there things there that, that are blacked out? I mean, could that be one of the pages, practically the whole thing was blacked out? Were you kind of surprised there wasn't more in the report that we know of about Don Jr., or was that part of the redacted information? Yeah, I, I thought maybe Don Jr. and Kirshner both might be in some trouble, and as it turns out, I assume that the Mueller team thought that they just didn't have enough evidence to uh, to indict either one of them because they were certainly both indictable uh, or, or even to be named as unindicted co-conspirators. Um, I, I, you know, that that is one thing that it would be nice to see Mueller answer in you know an open setting, but he wouldn't even answer yeah. questions the other day. Um, yeah, well, he 
here's um, here's what I think I would do. Here's how I'd play it initially if I were Nancy Pelosi. I'd say, look, we will, and he said if we press him, he will testify. William Barr, if we don't get a copy, and actually I would say if the American people don't get a copy of an unredacted Mueller report, no blacking out of anything, let's get real. Well, there's so much information. Uh, I mean, as far as like uh, state secrets, come on. That's just not in there, I'm sure. We're going to demand you give us an unredacted copy, or we're going to subpoena Bob Mueller, and we're going to go all the way through a hearing and ask anything we want. Now, that's saying you could still say, well, we may still do that based on what we see in the report, but no doubt we are going to call him if you don't give us an unredacted copy. And I would do that power move first before I went any further. But I want to go on to something different right now and welcome on our guest for probably about the fourth or fifth time to the kudzu vine from Red Racing Horses. Welcome back, Jackson Dar. Jackson. Hey, y'all. How you doing? Good to have you on. Good to yeah. be here. Well, let's, let's, glad to have you. We are talking national politics. We're talking about the Mueller report. And, of course, that's going to cloud elections. Let me just ask you an overarching political question, a horse race question. How do you think um, the cloud of the Mueller report and, and what we know and what we don't know, how does that affect the um, 2020 election? Well, I think you've sort of got two options here. There's an option where it doesn't really have that much of an effect, and there's an option where it has not an insane effect because, frankly, almost nothing has a very large, you know, more than a couple points effect these days. But, of course, that, that matters when it's close. But, however, at the, the polling that was brought up a few minutes ago, uh, yeah, it's about 66% against impeachment. <laughs> um so I'm actually really hoping the Democrats try to impeach. I don't think they will. I think Pelosi's smarter than that. But um, I'm really, really hoping that they try. Uh, because even if they fail, even if, it's, even if it fails by a few votes or 20 votes, you know, that won't be as big of an impact. But if, it were to, if the vote were to somehow to pass and the trial were to start, oh, man, I mean, I'd have a field day. Um, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be sitting there watching with popcorn and, you know, popping champagne. Um, because, with all due respect to our friend there from Georgia, he brought up the three previous examples. Well, Nixon's wasn't exactly impeachment. I mean, he resigned, but it was sort of impeachment. It, 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 the, those three examples can be fairly easily debunked. So the easiest one to debunk is Johnson. Johnson what, had run on a unity ticket with Lincoln. And so, yes, he was a Democrat. He was on the national unity ticket, um, and Lincoln was a Republican. And, yes, the Republicans did win the next election. But uh, the reason the Republicans won the next election really had nothing to do with how things played out with Johnson and everything to do with the fact that a very, very large majority of the Democrats in the country were barred from voting uh, by the presence of federal troops in the South. Uh, so, I mean, you know, just, or, or, or they'd been Confederates or what have you, you know. Um, all, all, all the African-Americans down there were voting for Republicans as well, could finally do that. And we hadn't had as much of a labor mentality take hold in the northern cities, so they were more Republican at the time. Plus, they just won a war that basically broke down along partisan lines. Yes, the Copperheads and such. But, so that's that one. Uh, that really – Johnson's impeachment really had nothing to do with whether – you know, with whether – you know, with why Grant won. 
Um, and in terms of Nixon, Watergate certainly had a huge effect on the next election, uh, no doubt. But it wasn't really the impeachment itself. It was because if it was just an impeachment for Watergate, for the whole Watergate incident, Nixon would have gotten off scot-free. Of course, what we see when you get into these is when is, it was the cover-up, not the actual doing, because, of course, Nixon really didn't know what was going on. If he had simply been impeached for that, well, pro- he probably would have come out ahead, but the idiot tried to cover it up, right? Um, and so, yeah, he eventually had to resign all that. And then you get to Clinton, and yes, as you point out, congressional elections seem to hurt, but then later, you know, Bush won. Well, that's true, but it was a lot closer than it should have been because – you know, it's very hard to go for a third term of one party in a row. You have to have done a very good job or something very special needs to have happened, especially in this modern era. And, well, you know, it could go almost one. And a lot of that probably had to do with the combination of the Clinton years being pretty good years for the economy and some, some lingering annoyance with Republicans over having impeached the guy who, you know, I th- what, did they, what was the overlay? It was like bombing Serbia while they were doing the impeachment vote or something. So, uh, you know, terrible optics. It's a terrible idea to impeach Clinton, especially when it turned out he hadn't actually – he'd, all he'd done was lie to Congress, which is illegal, but, you know, people don't care nearly as much. So anyway, there's my piece on that. Yes, well, I mean, and I do think that the Watergate, um, that's probably the clearest example because there is a cover-up involved. Um, and they, and you know, the American public did want a style change, and Jimmy Carter was very much a different style change from Richard Nixon. Well, talking about the Democrats, um, I know Tim's got some more questions, but how do you, what do you, what do you find to be the most intriguing aspects so far of the Democratic primary, especially from a Republican point of view? The intriguing aspect, and 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 I'll. I'll sit here and say it's, it's a worrying aspect for me is uh, how as, as how the different parts uh, which different parts of the coalition are going with the smaller candidates and I guess it's not that unpredictable but you've got a lot of candidates in this field you've got a lot of candidates polling at one or two percent or a little bit higher but almost all of the smaller candidates are ta- are mostly are almost completely taking votes from Bernie that's almost exclusively uh, they're taking a few votes from Biden. They're taking a few votes from whoever's in third at whatever, at whatever moment it is right now. And all of this will likely change with the debates. But right now, I think that if the field were only a couple of people, I think Bernie Sanders would be neck and neck with Biden right now. And it's concerning to me because it makes it way easier. Biden already had the easiest task as long as he doesn't screw up, which is why he's not doing a lot of public events. Um, and, you know, one or two gaps isn't going to do it, but uh, a long series that settles into the public mind might. Um, and, of course, you can't avoid the debates. But Biden scares me. I think Biden is the only candidate y'all have that has better than a 50-50 shot at beating Trump, both from histor- for historical reasons and for reasons of the actual candidates themselves. This is, is no insult to most of the other candidates. It's just I think Biden is the strongest. He's got universal name recognition. He's, he, but what he really has is – that, that true crossover appeal. He appears to the electorate, and I think he really is, to be sort of a pre-2016 pre or even pre-2010, pre-2008, pre-Obama era Democrat with a lot of crossover into 
white working class, but also even, but his main base is among the African-American community. That's why he's so hard to beat. And I think Sanders could beat him. But right now, Pete Buttigieg and, uh, and Kamala Harris and Beto and whoever you want to name, they're almost completely taking votes from Sanders. Sanders should be running away with California, but he's neck and neck with Biden there because, well, that's where Kamala Harris is from. So. Well, and I want to mention two of those people because I'd actually see them as a little bit different um, because, you know, they have some personal aspects about them that make them more intriguing. Uh, they're younger. Uh, they're not as um, tone and everything as radical as Bernie Sanders um, appears to be. But why don't you think that if they were to become the candidate, either Kamala Harris or Beto O'Rourke wouldn't be um, – is just as tough, if not a tougher, candidate than Joe Biden to beat. Because they don't have that built-in crossover appeal. Yes, they could develop a new crossover appeal. Uh, Beto, is, Beto and Buttigieg, they're young, they're energetic. Maybe they could really get the youth involved, although every time you try to get the youth involved in the vote, it, you know, with the exception of Obama, you know, so Obama's the model, right? It tends to fall flat unless you're that guy. Or, well, Obama and Kennedy. Um, those are the models, but but with Biden, one of the other candidates may end up having that kind of extra crossover or extra turnout boost or something like that. But it's it's, a, it's a, with all of them, it's a question. With Biden, it's not a question. It already exists. We see it in polling. It's dropped a bit. It's not as much because he's gotten in the race. It's not as much, but it's still a big advantage. And if you know all other things being equal, maybe Biden comes out battered or something due to things he said in the past or does during the campaign. But looking at it right now, that's the person I don't want to face because that's the person who has better than 50-50 shot at being Trump. The others might in actuality down the line, but we just don't know because we haven't seen them really interact in the campaign trail, really kind of – we haven't seen the rubber meet the road with some of these people because a lot of them are pretty new in the political world. You know, Maybe if you're from their local area, maybe you know. Maybe you know for sure because you've known Kamala Harris for 20 years and you've seen how she's navigated politics in San Francisco and all these things. But unless you, you know, unless you're from that area, know her well, you wouldn't know, and you also wouldn't know if maybe Beto could actually do it better because you're not from El Paso. These people haven't been in the limelight very much, and so we'll have to see what happens to, to reveal if any of them has some bigger advantage than that over Biden. But I doubt it. Yeah, well, I will say one thing. I watched that um, documentary that was on uh, HBO this past week uh, about Beto O'Rourke's campaign, and what I took away from it, and, and we had kind of followed, studied, and talked to a lot of people to know about the campaign. The campaign was fine. He was what he was on the stump, but you got to see so much of his wife and so much of his kids, and it, they, they just look like – Everything that Republican America would love. A Republican America would love the three kids, the the nuclear family, the um, the mom, you know, his wife. Um, you know, it, it was all there, and that was one thing. If you ever talked to, at least when I talked to Republicans, the one thing they always loved about Barack Obama was Michelle Obama, the marriage, and the kids, and the way they raised their kids. That they did it the Mike Pence way, to be simple about it, and and that's I think one thing that could give uh, a better work some crossover appeal if he broke out of that pack of twenty three. 
And that's the bigger question. But I could keep on asking questions, but i got to stop and pass it to Tim because he's got some national stuff, and then he's also going to get us into some state. Tim? Uh, good evening, Jackson. How are you doing tonight? Uh, very well, sir. hope you're doing well. Uh, yes. Well, I do want to uh, step over into some other uh, some other races and things that's going on because a couple of them are going on this year, and and one I want to ask you about right now is up in Kentucky where um, Governor Bevin has at present the lowest approval rating of any current governor in the United States, and he starts off according to uh, Charlie Cook starts his re-election campaign as either running even or perhaps even slightly behind Andy Bashir in the polls. Um, the president has promised to aggressively campaign for Bevin. Um, what's going to happen up there? Will Trump coming in and help him be enough to pull him across the finish line this year? This one's going to be a barn burner, and I don't mean to not commit there. I'll give you my prediction in a second. But uh, this one is going to be a barn burner. As you point out, Matt Bevin is – this is not a cherry-picked poll. You are right. Matt Bevin is the most unpopular governor in America. Um, it, it must also be pointed out that Mitch McConnell is one of the most unpopular senators in America yet repeatedly gets reelected, uh, being Kentucky. But, but, no, but governor's races are different. There's a lot more willingness to ticket split, and not even just ticket split. You know, a lot of the eastern Kentucky, especially eastern, western Kentucky too, but a lot of the eastern Kentucky – Voters are, are still registered Democrats and will vote for certain Democrats. What I found really interesting about this race was how the Democratic primary shook out. Y'all kind of went with the split difference option. You had Adam Edelin, you know, statewide elected official, but he, you know, he's he's no he's no Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, but you know, he's he's pretty decently, you know, left left wing over there. Uh, especially for Kentucky, and he, he got a decent chunk of votes. Rocky Adkins, you know, he's moderate to conservative even. You know, John Bell Edwards, maybe even more to the right. Um, and then you had Andy Bashir, you know, Steve, former governor's son, AG, relatively moderate with a bit of a liberal slant, more than his father, but nothing off the rails. Um, and y'all went with sort of the split the difference option. If Rocky Adkins had, be, had been nominated – I would be on the radio right now telling y'all that Bevin was going to lose um, because Adkins would have won this thing pretty much hands down. You could see it in the primary where he was cleaning up in eastern Kentucky, and a lot of those voters who voted in that primary for him will now switch over to the Republican primary for the general – or well, can take it for the general election. Not all of them. Some of them will stay with Bashir. Now, Edlin, if Edlin had been nominated, he probably almost certainly would have won – uh, Bevin would have almost certainly won re-election, not by a lot, but it, it, it would have had a very low ceiling, but he probably would have you know, won by seven, eight points. Now, Bashir, as I said, has split the difference option. I tend to think – I tend to think that in the end, if Bashir plays his cards right, I think he's got a slightly better than even odds chance of beating Bevin. If I had to – if I, I'm going out on a limb here, but if I had to predict now – Bevin loses. Now, as far as Trump goes, I'm already factoring Trump in, and Trump will be a plus for Bevin. That's the swing that Bashir needs to win. Most of them, not all of them, some of the suburban ones in Louisville and Lexington and around Cincinnati aren't, but most of the swing voters in the state are Trump fans, a lot of them very much so. So 
I think that's why Bevin actually has a decent chance at reelection, but I'd still give just a very slight edge to Bashir. That name, that one of the things Democrats tend to do very well is you you might get annoyed about family dynasties and politics, but but those names, especially the lower info swing voters, they matter. And if they trust that name, they're way more willing to pull the pull the lever. And Bashir has a good name among these voters. So mm-hmm. I'd, I'd make a slight Bashir, slight chance for Bashir election, but he's got to run it just right. Now, um, a lot of pundits, a lot of talking heads have tried to play this Kentucky race up as a prelude, a precursor to the national election. And I don't necessarily view it in that light because this race seems to be more about the governor and the people that he's alienated and his overall performance, because he's a pretty pugnacious fellow, and that's putting it mildly. A- am I right about that? I think you are right, generally. Um, governor's races are generally much more divo- – national politics still matters to him, certainly. But a governor's race in an off-year election, that's kind of your best chance to, to, to go against the tide of the lean of your state and the tide of national politics doesn't mean you're going to get it all the time, but, you know, especially if you've got a very Republican or very Democratic state. But people are willing to split tickets more uh, in certain areas than others and, and in certain times and races than others. And, you know, areas are one thing, but when it comes to time and race, the, the best race for it is the governor's race, which gets a lot of coverage but involves local issues where people can divorce themselves from the national party. And the best time for it is when there isn't something else on the ballot that might drive turnout among the majority party and therefore undo the good, the good crossover work that's been done otherwise. So I don't really think it has that much implication on it. I think you're right. Okay. Well, I want to jump now to a race next year because uh, where where I live, I can look out my window here and see Lookout Mountain and the Alabama state line. That's that's how close I am to Alabama. That's where my father grew up. Oh, really? Just off a Lookout. Oh, cool. Um, And, and of course, we got Senator Doug Jones over there who, who won in a very unique fashion in a special election, but he's going to be running for re-election in one of the reddest of red states, I believe Donald Trump's popularity is like he has the second highest popularity in the state of Alabama of any of the states in the country, and, that, and that's saying a lot. Can Doug Jones possibly survive if he is facing any candidate not named Roy Moore? If the candidate is not named Roy Moore, his chances – are lower than the number of fingers I have on my left hand. Uh, uh, you know, there's several candidates running. You've got Moore himself. You've got Tommy Tuberville, uh, the former football coach. You've got mm-hmm. Bradley Byrne, who's a congressman. I myself prefer Byrne, and I think he'd be the strongest, but Tuberville wouldn't really be a problem. Del, Del Marsh backed out. He's a state senator. Um, if it's Roy Moore... It's you know it's it's a toss it's a toss up because you do have it wouldn't be off year it would be it would be during a presidential election I've mentioned differences in turnout but you know I think against Moore I think Jones would be favored if he faced Moore again though not by that much but remember he didn't win by that much 
Um, mm-hmm. But but I think against Moore, does he have a chance? If it's against someone else, yes. But but it, as is often the case, especially in modern elections, his his very small chance against anyone else has basically nothing to do with what Jones does, and everything to do with whether or not that other person's campaign complete and life completely implodes all at once. Mm-hmm. It happens, but it's yeah. rare. You need to pull a straight flush. I see this very much like the Scott Brown 2012 election. Uh-huh. Was there a chance he was going to get reelected? Yes, there was, but it wasn't. And 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 he ended up running very much ahead of what he what a normal Republican would have done. And I think Jones will run ahead of the normal Democrat in Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll get 45 instead of 41 or whatever it is, or well, 39 usually. But uh-huh. uh, but I, I don't think it's a very high chance. Just two in the All last. right. Uh, I got one more question for you, and this time I'm going to jump back up to presidential politics. And the reason I'm going to ask you this question is simple. I am a baby boomer, and uh, and that gives you an idea how old I am. Uh, David is middle-aged, putting it charitably. (laughs) You are a young voter. We are looking at a situation next year where it's highly possible that both major party nominees are going to be well into their 70s. How are young voters going to react to that? Are they going to be engaged? Are they going to sit at home? What are they going to do? I think it really depends on who the Democratic nominee is. Uh, I say that for two reasons. One, uh, y'all do get, uh, you know, every year except for 1984 – Y'all have had an advantage among the youth vote. Mm-hmm. Um, 1984, I think it was Reagan plus two among the youth vote, but that was an odd one. Um, that's one. So, it, it, the, the, you know, the, more of the conversation is going on the Democratic primary anyway, and it, among younger people, that that's going to be the, that's going to dominate the conversation because more of them are in the circle. But the real thing is, it, it doesn't necessarily matter for the age of the nominee. Let it might, but it might not. If Biden gets nominated, no, it's not going to set young people on fire. But he doesn't necessarily need that because of his other crossover appeal. If Kamala Harris gets nominated, who's not young, but is not old either, I don't think it's going to light anyone on fire either. Beto or Buttigieg, maybe it would. It depends. If if they got to the nomination like that, that probably meant they were able to really see something like that. But Bernie Sanders, got to remember. What is Bernie Sanders' best demographic? Young, white, liberal men. Okay? If you keep slicing and dicing the demographics down, what is his best? I mean, he gets Stalin-esque numbers among younger, white, liberal men, or it certainly did against Hillary, and still kind of does, even though, again, a lot of his thunder in the demographics is is being peeled off by other candidates at the moment. Mm -hmm. If Bernie Sanders gets nominated, I don't think – I think it's – I think it's – still likely that Trump would beat him, but I do think he would get the youth at least a bit more engaged, because that's where a lot of his base is, despite his age. It's, it's more the way he talks about things, and it's more the policies that he promotes that does energize a certain number of voters. Now, now the demographics I just mentioned, a lot of them already voted pretty high levels, but I think you would see a modest turnout bump among them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the nominees are Biden and Trump, the two, the two you know, obvious favorites at the moment 
would we be looking at a situation where young voters in both parties might say, you know what, I've got nothing in common with these candidates. I'm setting it out, and we could see a severe downturn in the turnout in both parties of young voters. We could, uh, but two two points there. One, even if you see even if you downturn in each party, let's say let's say there was a ten percent decline in turnout among Democratic youth and a ten percent decline in turnout among Republican youth. That's a net uh-huh. Republican gain because you you you're, you know you're talking about over sixty percent of the youth being Democrats, right? So it's, uh-huh. it's, you know it's a it's a nice it's a nice little point or two gain for for us among that demographic. Um, that's one thing. Two, um, I, and I, I don't know as well how it is in the Democratic Party because you don't have a nominee right now. I don't know what the young's true feelings are about Biden. But as far as Trump goes, a lot of the younger people in the Republican Party, there were a few younger people in the Republican Party that were very, uh, that were obviously very mad at Trump, just like they were at any at every age level. And some of them left the party, and you know, just a few of them uh, here and there went off at all age levels. But the youth among regular Republican voters is not generally where Trump's problem lies in terms of Republicans. Most of the people who don't like, uh, who didn't like Trump and have jumped ship, few though they are relatively to percentage numbers, most of them are actually, you know, I'd say mid-30s to, to mid-60s. We're talking about people who very much prioritize uh, norms and economics and stuff like that. A lot of the younger voter, you know, and, and grew up in a different time when politics was conducted in, let's say, a more uh, polite way. Um, among the younger members of the party, who I talk to all the time and, and across the country as well, uh, they're way more used to the current style of politics. It's not that they all love Trump. Heck, I don't. I mean, I'll vote for him, but I don't like him. But, but. I would say that the average young Republican voter likes Trump more than I do, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll still vote for the man. Um, not, it's not that they try to emulate him or sort of latch on to everything or follow his every tweet and take it seriously. It's more that they're just more used to this kind of trench warfare politics and are more sort of embittered and embattled against the other side. I would think the same would be true for younger Democrats, but I just don't know. Well, thank you for that, sir, and I certainly appreciate uh, your excellent analysis for us today, and I'm going to send it back to David. David? Well, Jackson, your last answer just segued into my next question, and you just said that you're a Republican. You don't like Donald Trump. Um, John Kasich, he won't run. Um, uh, Larry Hogan, uh, governor of Maryland, won't run, but Bill Weld. Uh, former Republican governor of Massachusetts is running. Um, what chances does he have to get you and the people like you that are Republican but don't like Donald Trump? Well, first of all, the uh, vast majority of the party has come to like him anyway, or at least they stay, stick with him. Um, there is an unusually large minority that don't. That's true, uh, but it's still – decidedly a minority and most of them will still end up either not turning out for the primaries because they know he's going to win or voting, you know, or voting, even some voting for him. And I'll be clear. I don't like the man personally. I've been overall pretty happy with policy outcomes. I'm sure we will disagree on that, 
but uh, I, personally, I, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to be around him too much. Uh, but you know, uh, I'll certainly vote for him next time, even though I didn't last time. I voted for Gary Johnson, and that's something I wanted to bring up. That that not all of the voters that Trump lost in 2016 are coming back. In fact, a lot of them aren't. But the ones that didn't directly go with Clinton, a lot of them will come back. You know, as, as much as one percent of the vote will likely be back. Now we may lose other votes that we got the first time or that didn't exist before, but. Um, Given results from a Republican perspective, it is likely that at least one extra percentage of the vote that went to Gary Johnson or uh, Mullen will uh, will rally to him. Now, um, as as far as Weld goes, I mean he will he will get if he runs he will get some interestingly high historical. Uh, historical numbers when you look back at people trying to challenge incumbent presidents in their own primary it won't be the highest but uh because you know gerald ford existed but you know there'll be some interestingly high numbers maybe 15 percent in some places but only in certain places it, he really has no prayer at all and i i find it to be a very don quixote tilting at windmills kind of uh kind of endeavor it almost makes me think john weaver's behind it is whispering something into his ear. But then again, I, I just found out that John Weaver, uh, you know, is, is now, after yelling about how terrible the Russians were, is now working for the Russians. So, you know, that man has, that man is terrible. Yes, well, let's, uh, I just had to ask you that because that could be intriguing is if the Republican primary was a primary a la 1992 um, not like many other years we've seen with incumbent presidents. Well, the other uh, another state that was very interesting that I wanted to talk to you about was Arizona. Um, you have now an incumbent senator, Martha McSally, who was appointed that's running against um, one of a handful of uh, Democrats that are running, one which is pretty intriguing, um, the former astronaut Mark Kelly, and I'm sure some of the others are too. I just am not as familiar but how do you see yeah, that Arizona Senate right? Uh, it's going to be tight. Um, if this were an off-year election, even a fairly neutral one, I would be fairly worried about McSally losing. I'm still a little worried about it, but I think as long as Trump wins the state by, say, four or five points, which he should in a close election um, – uh, well, maybe not. I mean, things do shift. Perhaps he does better in the East and and loses a bit more in the West. We can definitely see a pattern like that. We've been seeing politics shift like that for a while. Republicans doing way better in the East than we used to, and especially the Midwest, and doing worse in the West. But if Trump wins the state by four or five points, McSally will get an extra point or two uh, as sort of you know the normal incumbent bonus. She should be fine. Uh, but it will probably be relatively narrow. Of course, if Trump is losing by a decent amount, then I think she's toast. Uh, but as long as Trump's winning the state by, again, four or five points, I think she'll squeak across the line by two or three. Yes. Well, you're pretty bullish on Arizona, so let me take it the other way to the, the state that's most likely to flip for the Democrats and see where you stand there. What about Colorado and Cory Gardner running for re-election? Colorado is going to be the toughest for us, no doubt. Now, a lot of people think Colorado is a very blue state. Well, it's not D plus one, D plus two on a really bad day. 
but it's a pretty inelastic one. That's the thing. Uh, Democrats have a very high floor in the state. Um, you know, Cory Gardner has had a lot of ups and downs in his tenure in terms of popularity, um, mostly ups, but some downs. Certain things weren't popular. Um, he's mostly had a very good constituent service operation and all that, but that stuff doesn't matter as much as it used to. Now, the only – I've been expecting him to pull a great opponent and sort of go in as an underdog for a while now. The only thing keeping me from saying that he's certainly going to lose – or not certainly, but likely to lose – is that so far all the Democrats running are not very prominent. Now, there's a lot of them. And that doesn't mean there isn't a great candidate hidden in there. There probably is, in fact, just given the sheer number. Um, but what that tells me is that the big boys are not so confident that he's going down. Now, I think in the end he is likely to very narrowly lose, very narrowly. I mean, I mean maybe, maybe Michigan 2016 presidential close. I think he will absolutely run up the margins in the rural areas, being both the east and west, the mountains and the plains, he will run up the margins in Colorado Springs. He will, he will probably win Pueblo County, okay, something any Republican running statewide didn't, used to, didn't have to do but kind of has to do now. He'll decently in the suburbs, but I think turn out in Denver and maybe, in, maybe not getting quite the margins he needs in some areas just south of the city because of uh, presidential uh, presidential preferences uh, messing with people's preferences for Senate, I think that will eventually sink him. But there's always a chance that with such a crazy primary, he ends up with uh, a sort of damaged opponent who won a primary of 22 percent. You know, but but I think on the whole, he is likely to lose very narrowly. Yes. Well, there's so many more good races we haven't got to, so I'm going to kind of ask an open-ended one of. All of the um, other races we hadn't talked about for Senate, which one do you think that um, should be? You know, people think, well, that's probably going to go Republican. Republican holds it. Republicans usually mainly win. That a Democrat might surprise. That a Democrat might Democrat might surprise. I think hmm, difficult, but I I would say. The one most likely to surprise is North Carolina. Hmm. I don't think it's going to, but on a scale of most likely to least likely, I think North Carolina comes up. And it's simply because Trump is likely to win it, but Tom Tillis has only been there for one term. He's North Carolina is a very, as we know, is a very, very politically divided, scorched earth kind of state. And Tillis, while not extremely unpopular, has never been extremely popular either. Um, I could see if, let's say, Trump narrowly wins the state, but Biden beats him overall, or someone else, but I'm going to assume it's Biden. Trump narrowly wins the state. Biden beats him overall. The Democratic nominee gets just a point or two more, because we're talking about inches here. This is World War I trench warfare politics we're dealing with here, especially in North Carolina. Then I think Tillis could go down because of either ballot uh, drop-off down the ballot or, or maybe just because, well, the Democrat candidate's really good and, and, and Tillis is just kind of uninspiring to some people. I, 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 think that could, I think that could happen. But if that's happening, then Trump's losing the election as well. Okay, and I'm going to flip it. A little more fun question for you. Uh, go the other way. 
a, a race, a Senate race that should be Democratic, but for some reason is going to have a Republican trend uh, in 2020. I'm not sure if there's a really good – I'll do it the same way I did the last one in that I don't think this is likely to happen, but if you had to pick one, this would be the most likely, and that would be New Hampshire. Um, Gene Shaheen is a strong incumbent, and uh, or relatively strong anyway, uh, and she's helped by the fact that New Hampshire is a fairly elastic state that still uh, has a decent amount of crossover voting and still rewards – what they perceive as good incumbents. It's much more than on average these days. However, however, Trump has a very, very strong base in New Hampshire. Uh, uh, one of the odd things about his appeal, at least odd in recent Republican history, is that although he lost a lot of suburban areas and sort of those kind of traditional Republican areas, he actually revived the party in rural New England. Uh, I mean, really just, he and a few others right before him just brought it back from the dead uh, or almost dead. And it's, it's worked for him in, you know, in Maine In Maine, Maine got down to D plus one uh, on the scale uh, last election. Who knows what it will be this time. I think there's even an outside chance Trump carries Maine, but it, it's, it's unlikely. Um, and man was New Hampshire close. I mean, Trump lost it by what? 2,700 votes. I lost it by, a little bit more, a little bit less. In fact, Iot was getting some crossover votes, but the main reason that she lost was that she had sort of abandoned Trump earlier on, and some of the Trump people blanked their, uh, blanked their ballots uh, for the Senate race. Iot likely would have won, barely, if she had done that. And so that's a very, very strong, that's a very, very strong base to have. It's going to make, it, it's going to make Jean Shaheen's base high as well, but her ceiling's also going to be low because of a presidential year. And if we can get a strong opponent and Trump wins by a point or two more than might be thought, maybe he gets 49% of the vote nationwide, 40, even 50 wins. I could see him pulling a good nominee across the line, which is causing very little ticket splitting. Yes. We don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to give Tim uh, another chance. Anything we left out that you want to ask about Tim? Well, there is one thing I, I do want to ask about, uh, Jackson. It's kind of a tough question. Uh, we know historically abortion has never proved to be a cutting issue in, in presidential general election campaigns. Um, will it finally become a major issue next year, or will it take its customary backseat to jobs, the economy, and those types of things? I think rhetorically, uh, it very well might, given the, all the court actions going on right now with all these new laws in certain states and all these, all that that whole situation. I think you might hear more about it than you normally would. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I don't think that'll change very much. But then again, discussion of most issues doesn't actually change much in presidential campaigns. Uh huh. Uh, discussion of issues doesn't change much, and really much, but gubernatorial and mayoral campaigns these days. And, uh, uh, you know, overall long-term discussion of issues and the way they move, yes, that changes it, but in, in election discussion doesn't much. And so, yeah, you might see very much more of it, but pretty much everyone is already in their trenches on this. 
Yeah. They're single-issue voters already is what you're telling me, right? They, they, on, they on, vote one way or the other, and that's that, and it's nothing's going to change it. Generally on both sides, yes. Uh, and I think you're exactly right on that, and I appreciate that definitive answer, and that's all I got. David? Yes, well, that was a good comment, both of y'all. Well, uh, Jackson, we thank you for coming on. Uh, just leave our listeners with this. Um, you can give them the address, uh, web address for Red Racing Horses, but if there's other places they can read your work or find you on social media, share that with our listeners. Well, uh, we've got rrhelections.com. That's our website. We cover uh, politics on a sort of uh, daily basis during the week. We have weekend open threads, and it is a Republican-leaning site, but we have a decent number of Democratic posts as well. Everyone's treated pretty fairly, I think. Um, and as far as other media, uh, I've appeared on a couple of local uh, shows here in Memphis where I live. So if you want to look up uh, Jackson Dar informed sources, you can see me speaking on the local CBS station. And I think there's a video or two on YouTube from some other podcasts That's where you can find me. All right. Good to hear. Well, Jackson, thanks again for being on the Cudsy Vine. Thank you all. Had a great time. Hope to be back again. Good Thank you, sir. Yes. Uh, Tim, good to have Jackson on, and hopefully we'll have Catherine back next week. But until then, that's been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, everybody. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.